0: Through our serious errors of judgement and our inability to recognise the scope of the evil confronting us, we failed to do our part to save the people of Srebrenica from the Serb campaign of mass murder. The failings were rooted in the UN philosophy of neutrality and non-violence, wholly unsuited to the conflict in Bosnia.
1: Those are the words of Kofi Annan during the launch of a United Nations report into the events in the Srebrenica safe zone. It's now November 1999, and Kofi Annan's the UN Secretary-General. During the fall of Srebrenica, he was the Under-Secretary-General in charge of the UN's peacekeeping operations. The French newspaper Le Monde says his words are unprecedented in the United Nations' history. The 150-page report recognises the UN's errors of judgement and calls for all member states involved in the conflict to conduct national inquiries into their responsibilities over the abandonment and the subsequent massacre of thousands of people in the enclave. In Holland, politicians and the tabloid press breathe a sigh of relief. This UN report seems to let their blue helmet peacekeepers off the hook. As we heard in episode four, Dutchbat have already been investigated and cleared of any responsibility by their own Ministry of Defence. Emotions
2: were more related to, against or in favour of Dutchbat and not about what was our role in protecting or not protecting the people in
1: Srebrenica. MSF, meanwhile, decided to publish eyewitness accounts and the Srebrenica team's logbook in response to media queries about the organisation's relations with the Dutch peacekeepers, whose passive behaviour had been questioned.
3: On behalf of MSF, I request assistance for the population. This is a non-acceptable situation. Please inform us about your steps.
1: But aside from Holland, none of the other countries involved in peacekeeping in Bosnia have set up inquiries yet. In France, MSF uses the momentum created by the UN report's publication to push for their own parliamentary investigation. But will MSF succeed in getting the French to examine their actions in Trebronisa in the summer of 1995? And if a parliamentary commission is established, is it the role of a humanitarian medical organisation to actively monitor it with a critical eye? As time passes, it gives those in MSF space to reconsider the organization's own actions during the fall. Is it possible for individuals, and even the organization as a whole, to ignore the global circumstances and responsibilities that led to the abandonment and massacre of a population they worked with? I'm Nick Owen, and this is Médecins Sans Frontières speaking out, Srebrenica.
0: Today, we say enough. Even war as will. Il along the frontière, risque d'un jour Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There
4: not be
2: a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people
4: are dying.
1: Episode 5: Mechanisms and Expectations. In December 1999, MSF wins the Nobel Peace Prize for their humanitarian work around the world. In his acceptance speech, the organization's international president draws attention to Srebrenica.
0: If UN military operations are to protect civilian populations in the future, they must go beyond the mere culprit excuses of the Secretary-General over Srebrenica and Rwanda. There must be a reform of peacekeeping operations in the UN. Member States of the Security Council should be held publicly accountable for the decisions that they do or do not vote for.
1: The need to decide where the responsibilities lie is still incredibly strong five years on. No one wants this to happen again. As the next millennium begins, MSF France are discussing how to get a French parliamentary inquiry on Srebrenica. On the 20th of March, MSF France's legal advisers put out an internal memo on the latest. Fabien de Bouet is one of those advisors.
4: France had a very central role in Srebrenica because, first of all, you know, the whole UN operation, UNPROFOR, was very much headed by a, a series of French generals, uh, Vier Morillon, etc., uh, but also because France was a key architect in the definition and the Adoption in the Security Council of the concept, the very concept of security zone, zone de sécurité. So, uh, you know, there was this context. Then there was, I would say, something that was uh, a more strategic or, or systemic development, which was that we were at the end of the Cold War and there were a lot of reforms, ongoing reforms of the military apparatus, basically moving from uh, having the militaries very static to uh, more mobility, basically the projection of military forces abroad, which we have seen since then. And our assessment was that, you know, we would be dealing with more military operations, mixing, you know, uh, military and, and, and humanitarian objectives. And we needed, uh, we needed more clarity, basically, on what we could expect from, from these operations, especially uh, in terms of protection of civilians.
1: On the 12th of April, MSF testifies at the UN Security Council on the protection of populations in conflict situations. The organisation draws on what happened in Srebrenica, among other situations, to challenge the UN's decision-making processes that led to people having no protection. In the summer of July 2000, just ahead of the fifth anniversary of the fall of Srebrenica, the UN Secretary-General Kofi Annan again speaks of his regret. The tragedy of Srebrenica will forever haunt the history of the United Nations, he says. He goes on to make an implicit call to bring to justice the so-called architects of the killings. The Bosnian Serb president Radovan Karadic and the military leader Ratko Mladic are still at large despite an international arrest warrant being issued four years ago. At a press conference two days later, MSF France launches its public appeal for a French parliamentary inquiry. The press kit to go with the appeal includes many of the documents and testimonies we've heard in this series so far, like the logbook or sit-reps from the MSF team in Srebrenica, witness statements taken from survivors in Tuzla, MSF's Nobel Peace Prize speech and extracts from the UN report published at the end of 1999. MSF's legal advisor, Françoise Boucher-Saulnier, is working on the
5: campaign. The idea was not to obtain convictions before Parliament, but to obtain explanations, to understand the facts and the responsibilities that led to this massacre. How did humanitarian and military responsibilities overlap? And then, what logic and what failure had led to the massacre of populations protected by the UN under the watchful eye of humanitarian organisations and UN military contingents. Since these were new processes, we needed to understand. How did the UN system of protecting security zones work, and how did it fail? And it was important for us humanitarians to understand that we should have analysed our interactions with these international military forces better. What should we, as humanitarians, have done differently in terms of operations, since we were actually present with these populations? and what should we have done in terms of communication? They had denied the number of dead, and we were left alone in saying no. But people died. Everyone was talking to their own public opinion, and there were 7,000 people dead. But no one could say why. It was nobody's fault. Some people had filled in the wrong form. Some said the fax machine was broken. Some said there had never been a request for help. It was all extremely disturbing, and we wanted to get everyone talking to each other, in front of the French parliament, so that we could understand the history of this disaster.
1: The chairman of the French parliament's defence commission, Paul Quiles, responds to MSF by saying he'll look into setting up a fact-finding commission after the summer recess. He previously led a similar commission on France's role in Rwanda. But today, he criticises the accusatory biases in MSF's appeal and says there will be no preconditions if this commission does take place. All the while, inside MSF, the debate continues on whether their presence in the enclave contributed to its fall. On the 4th of September, an interview with Eric Stobarts is published on MSF's international website. Eric was the general coordinator for MSF in the former Yugoslavia from December 93 to April 95. He reflects on the organization's stance at the time. I think the,
2: that sentence we have at MSF, which is, I'll quote it in French on purpose, ce n'est pas MSF, this is not MSF, or this is not what MSF does, is this you know, most dogmatic sentence that means nothing, uh, but somehow becomes like any dogma, uh, you know, uh, a buzzword that kills you or kills, eventually kills people, in that case. And our incapacity to get out of in such a polarized way to look at the conflict that I think somehow in, in some remits of MSF, you, there is this reading of there's good guys and bad guys in Bosnia and we're working for the good guys. And it is very obvious that this is war and war is nasty and and things are much more complex and there's nasty things happening everywhere. This reduction of the reality of the good and the bad is for me a difficult reading when you're a humanitarian actor. And obviously the proportion of suffering was much stronger on the Muslim, Muslim side, obviously, there's no question about that. But in terms of civilians, on the Serb side, there's been also a lot of fussing uh, with to, to which we tried to respond. But I think for on, within the Bosnian reality, the reality was not that clear cut. And this is what we were not able to capture. Obviously, with this reality, it's very difficult to think out of a box, you know, and preserving this humanitarian nature the neutrality of the organization, that that cannot move into a political sphere is a fallacy. Because obviously the fact that we were sitting in enclaves was a highly political decision because there happened to be, you know, uh, a decision against another party. So it was not neutral. And so thinking that we could not address the question of displacing a whole enclave to central Bosnia operationally not the MSF obviously but the the rest of the international community was also a fallacy I think and we would have had time to do that certainly between December and July and and that's why I'm so upset and I feel we have we have to blame ourselves and uh, I have to blame myself I do <laughs> constantly on Srebrenica but I found very sad that we never had a moment of discussion looking back through this light. And it's a hard, it's a hard discussion. It's a hard lesson. But we need to do it. I think we still have to do it.
1: When the French parliament resumes in the autumn of 2000, MSF France renews the pressure for a commission of inquiry by sending a series of documents to their media and parliamentary contacts.
3: MSF's request does not reflect an anti-military or anti-Bernard Janvier crusade. On the contrary, we want the commission to learn from what happened, in order to ensure that France never again deploys a military force that is powerless to act in the face of criminal policies implemented against a civilian population. Nor is our request the first step towards a judgment of France's political and military leaders for complicity in crimes against humanity. Our sole purpose is to establish political and military responsibility.
1: In November, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the French National Assembly announced the establishment of a fact-finding commission to investigate the events in Srebrenica in July 1995. The group is to be made up of 10 MPs and 2 rapporteurs. But a fact-finding commission is not the same as a commission of inquiry that MSF has been calling for. MSF legal adviser, Françoise Boucher-Solnier.
6: Une une procédure quasiment judiciaire où le parlement a le pouvoir De, uh, declassification
5: a commission of inquiry is a quasi-judicial procedure where Parliament has the power to request the declassification of documents and people are heard under oath. Parliament also has the power to obtain secret defence documents, among other things. But Parliament did not want to adopt this method, and so we ended up with a slightly weaker system, which was the fact-finding mission. A massacre of 7,000 people means that political considerations have to take a back seat. If we do not ask for the most robust procedure after the massacre of 7,000 people, we are being a little ridiculous. But at the same time, it was not a problem for me that we got a fact-finding mission, since it allowed us, paradoxically, as an NGO, to have much more power, since the fact-finding mission is public, whereas the Commission of Inquiry is secret. So that finally allowed us to be present at all the meetings and to put quite a lot of pressure on both the media and the parliamentarians, as their work was finally being done under our watch. It also meant that we could get the media interested in what was going on.
1: It's an important but difficult moment for the MSF France team.
5: Credibility and humanitarian professionalism were at stake. We had to tell Parliament, we want to be taken seriously on a matter of this importance. But I remember that there were threats from parliamentarians in particular, Who said that if MSF continued to call for the indictment of states for peacekeeping operations, it might result in states no longer wanting to take part in these sorts of operations? So we would be responsible, because we would be called to account. But that did not happen.
1: The same day, MSF France publicly calls on the French president and government to give the Commission's MPs access to documents and interviews with all those involved to help pinpoint where the responsibilities lie. The organisation also calls for the results of the Commission to be published. Next, MSF France puts together a critical review of the Fact-Finding Commission's investigations. The aim is to give the MPs information that will allow them to ask the relevant questions to shed light on the events in Srebrenica. To help focus those questions, the team also sets up a dedicated website to host all the information, analysis and verbatim reports from the Commission. Deputy Legal Advisor Fabien Debouet leads the MSF team.
4: Well, I think our idea at the time was really at the minimum we would record or or type the hearings of all the interviewees. You know, there were a series of uh, French but also uh, foreign uh, officials were interviewed and so the the minimum for us was to have their auditions as we say uh, posted very quickly on our website and then to provide some sort of analysis or assessment on the auditions and I think you know on the, on a number of occasions I think we were able to highlight that some of these officials were actually lying or they were very vague in their answers all that maybe the the specific questions that MSF, I think, was expecting to be to be raised to to these officials were not raised.
1: MSF had already been down the parliamentary commission route with their work on the genocide of Rwandan Tutsis. Legal adviser francoise Boucher
5: Boucher-Saulnier. vraiment très important parce sur la Commission sur Rwanda, it was really very, very important for us because we trusted Parliament with the Commission on Rwanda. We trusted it, and we let things take their course, and the result was extremely disappointing for us. It was very important for there to be a media pressure on the work of parliamentarians throughout the whole process. Otherwise, in the end, it would have served no real purpose, other than to allow the government to finally wash its honour, to wash its actions by saying, «Voilà, we agreed to set up a commission. This is proof that we are transparent. We issued a report. It is proof that we have worked. » so there are no more questions to ask us. We absolutely wanted to go further than giving the government a pretext to clean up its policy.
1: On 14th of December 2000, the first hearings of the French Parliamentary Fact-Finding Commission on Srebrenica begin. MSF puts out a press release listing the questions it feels the Commission should be answering. The benefits and strengths of this new MSF website becomes clear just before Christmas 2000, when MSF France publishes an explosive document they just sent to the Fact-Finding Commission. The document is a confidential cable from the UN. It confirms the theory that French President Jacques Chirac and President of Republika Srpska, Slobodan Milosevic, reached an agreement in 1995 to free French Blue Helmet hostages in exchange for a suspension of airstrikes. It appears that the rumours were true. This is just the first of many times over the next few months that MSF actively pushes the Commission hearings in the direction they think they should take. François again.
5: We wanted to use our legitimacy as actors in the field. We are not a human rights organisation. We are not an organisation that seeks justice or the identification of a guilty party. We want accountability and transparency in the protection of populations, Our teams had heard a number of things from the contingents, particularly the Dutch, and we wanted that information to be included in the questions that parliamentarians were putting to the government. Obviously, the parliamentarians had very few details, and so we would send them documents that they would have the relevant questions to ask the members of the government or the army during the hearings. But we also wanted them to be able to ask questions about the answers.
1: In the new year, the president of MSF France writes to the president of the commission with a list of around 20 people they think should be called to testify. MSF then sends a letter to the UN Secretary-General and the NATO Secretary-General, asking for some of their current and former officials to attend a commission hearing on their actions during the fall of Srebrenica. But on the 31st of January, NATO writes to MSF saying that their request never arrived. MSF publishes the response on their website two weeks later. Meanwhile, the two French generals involved in the events in Srebrenica, Bernard Janvier and Philippe Morion, are due to testify at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY. Morion was the Umprefor leader who stood on the balcony of Srebrenica post office, promising to protect the population back when MSF first entered the enclave in 1993. While Jean Vier was the Unprefort commander during the enclave's fall in July 1995, he's the one involved in the hostages for airstrike scandal. In a press release on the 24th of January, the French Ministry of Defence asks for both generals to be heard behind closed doors. They say that this is the International Criminal Tribunal's normal procedure, but this is news to the court. MSF publicly challenges the commission in a press release.
3: Such a light attitude regarding a straightforward procedural issue raises serious concerns regarding the consideration of substantive issues. This decision could call into question the credibility and relevance of the investigatory work conducted by the MPs. It also leaves unanswered key questions that were to be asked today, in particular to General Jean Vier.
6: At the
1: end of March, it's Christina Schmitz and Daniel O'Brien's turn to testify before the French Parliamentary Fact-Finding Commission. MSF decides that the pair should only relate what they'd witnessed as the only two MSF international staff inside the enclave when it fell. The analysis would be left up to the programme coordinator, Pierre Salignon. So maybe more
2: appropriate to pose this question to Pierre Salignon in May?
1: Much of what Christina and Daniel tell the Commission on the 29th of March is from the sit reps and messages we heard in episode 3. After their statements, the pair answer questions from the MPs and there's a small standoff over the foreseeable and unforeseeable nature of the attack and massacres.
5: First of all, it remains a question to everybody here. Was it predictable? Did uh, other people know? Did you know that it was happening? We did not, although looking backwards, it looks as if it
6: was predictable.
1: Christina and and Daniel stress that while the attack may be foreseeable, the lack of intervention by UNPRAFOR to protect the population wasn't. On the 26th of April, MSF publishes two more confidential documents on its Srebrenica website. These both seem to prove that a non-intervention agreement was made between General Mladic and Umprafor. They also show there had been a lot of disagreements over the airstrikes within Umprafor, particularly between General Janvier and British General Rupert Smith. On 16 May 2001, MSF issues a press release announcing that Deputy Programme Manager Pierre Salignon will testify the next day. To give some political background to Pierre's upcoming testimony, MSF posts extracts from an old article in the Independent newspaper from October 1995 about the UN briefing where General Jean Vier advised abandoning the enclaves. When Pierre stands before the MPs at 9.30 the next morning, he says in no uncertain terms that the fall and massacres at Srebrenica were foreseeable and the people were abandoned. He says Christina and Daniel knew that there would be an attack on the enclave in June. It should have been even clearer to Western military observers. French newspaper Le Monde is divided over Pierre's testimony.
3: While many of the points in MSF's assertions may be questionable, The organisation at least raises questions, seeks documents and needles the deputies, who are not little concerned with accuracy. Thursday's hearing was a signal. If it goes no further, the French Parliament's commission on Srebrenica will have been a waste of time.
1: In early June, MSF UK tries to convince the British authorities to allow General Rupert Smith to testify to the French Fact-Finding Commission. He was the unperforme commander of Bosnia-Herzegovina who disagreed with his superior general, Janvier, over the airstrikes. The British refuse. On the 5th of June, MSF France sends the fact-finding commission some documents that Pierre Salignon referred to in his testimony. After these two moves, MSF decides to limit their public statements on Srebrenica until the commission publishes its report in the autumn. Privately, within the organisation, they're not optimistic. On the 2nd of July, General Janvier testifies again in a closed-door session of the Parliamentary Fact-Finding Commission. He tells the press that the minutes of the now-famous closed-door UN meeting in 1995 were not complete, adding that he had also recommended keeping observers on-site and developing strategic airstrikes. Before the French Parliamentary Fact-Finding Commission publishes their report in November 2001, MSF send their own report to the British and Dutch media. Their analysis includes questions the organisation believes the Commission should be addressing and also a list of documents they feel are critical for the Commission to perform its work. Françoise again.
5: We wanted journalists to have a document from MSF in their hands that laid out the fundamental issues that the Fact-Finding Commission was supposed to have addressed by the time the Commission delivered its report. This allowed journalists to ask specific questions to the Commission officials, rather than simply listening to what the Commission officials had to say. During the conference on Rwanda, we remember Paul Killers, the president of the fact-finding mission, putting a 3,000-page report on the table and then giving the journalists a summary of the report. That summary was that France had nothing to be ashamed of in terms of what it did in Rwanda. And so the journalists who didn't have time to read a 3,000-page report filed their articles saying just that. In the end, it was a bit of a shame for us, because it meant that MSF was somehow allowing the government to propagandise its own policy by asking for this mission. For Srebrenica, we wanted things to be different. This time, the journalists asked specific questions, including taking up MSF's questions. It was therefore clear that the mission had partially answered some questions, but had avoided many others. And it also, I would say, ...restored the legitimacy, credibility and the professionalism of MSF. We are not idiots and we have shown that we are not being exploited by the French Parliament.
1: On the 29th of November 2001, the French Parliament's investigative report on Srebrenica is made public. It finds that the responsibility for the tragedy is shared by the entire international community... There are slight differences of opinion over some details, but on the whole, it criticises the Dutch Blue Helmet Battalion for not putting up any resistance to the Serbs. It also acknowledged General Janvier's, quote, errors of assessment, but concludes that he didn't make a deal with General Mladic over hostages. Over the next few days, MSF France says that they feel the report scapegoat Janvier, saying that while it acknowledges the military responsibilities, it ignores the political ones. MSF then calls on the United Kingdom and Holland to investigate where the responsibilities lie in their countries. While no one within MSF France was formally opposed to monitoring the Parliamentary Fact-Finding Commission at the time, questions come up later about the legitimacy of involving the organisation in a process like this. Some ask if MSF should have been satisfied that the mission was simply created, while others ask if a non-elected, non-profit organisation has the legitimacy to play a role in the work of the members of Parliament, former MSF France president Dr. Ronnie Broman. Moi, j'ai toujours des réticences, des hésitations. Well,
6: I still have reservations, hesitations. I would even say I'd refuse to place MSF in the role of mental or moral conscience. I find it problematic, and what's more, no one has appointed us to that role, nor are we entitled to occupy it. In fact, I don't think anyone is actually qualified to occupy a role in this way. But on the other hand, extremely serious things had happened in Srebrenica. We were witnesses, how shall I put it, both on the outside and on the inside, since we had a continuous presence and MSF already had a certain influence on the international scene. And finally, I think, despite initial reservations, it was good to put that influence at work, to push for an investigation that might not have been carried out if MSF had not been involved. So uh, there was a certain logic and definitely a certain consistency in that respect. That being said, we must see things in the execution too. For example, insisting on the right questions that should be asked. To somehow provide MSF with the legitimate framework to to get the truth out there, to accuse France or the Dutch or some other government, I think that was perhaps going beyond what was our area of legitimacy. Let's say both as a humanitarian organization and as an organisation that is committed to its work. So yes, let MSF put its influence and weight behind a parliamentary fact-finding mission, but with a certain amount of restraint and without claiming to guide the debates of this committee and provide the right questions or the right points to be examined.
1: Some say that MSF should have been challenged more, or speak, of an element of revenge by what they call old Bosnia hands, who'd been on the ground or involved in coordinating MSF's response in July 1995. But being deeply involved in the later French Fact-Finding Commission, Francoise Boucher-Saulnier, MSF France legal advisor, sees it differently
5: bah oui, When some people said yes, our role was to be in Srebrenica and to be operational. We have already helped create this fact-finding mission, so we don't need to do anything more. I did not agree at all, because it was a way of saying that it is not our responsibility. We are asking for a commission, but our responsibility stops there. I was very shocked, because the moment we ask for something, we ask not for the pleasure of annoying others, but because it's useful to us, and it concerns us. MSF does not make a request for an investigation to obtain convictions. It's to understand what humanitarian responsibility we have when we are in protected areas, or when we work with peacekeeping forces. So it concerns us directly. This is the core of our responsibility, in my opinion, and it is not a line of separation between human rights organisations and humanitarian organisations. So the French inquiry was absolutely fundamental and it was not for moral or political reasons that we were asking for an inquiry. It was in order to push the French political and military forces as far as possible towards a form of transparency to highlight once again the strengths and weaknesses of this military response to protection issues and mass crimes against populations at risk. When we have 7,000 dead on our hands, it would be irresponsible not to assess the ability of these international forces to carry out these mandates and to see whether the militarization of humanitarian aid that is underway is an advantage or is dangerous. Are we dealing with a military accident in the complex chain of command of the United Nations? Or are we facing a political agreement? If that is the case, then why did the agreement not include guarantees on the evacuation and safety of the population? Finally, we got the answer when the UN High Representative acknowledged that he had not ordered the airstrikes because it would have jeopardised the peace process that sentence is fundamental. In fact, it has been more or less ignored because everyone else had other obsessions. And that's a crucial point. Crucial for us as humanitarians to be able to position ourselves in similar situations. And there are multiple instances where UN peacekeepers are deployed in conjunction with political peace processes. In April
1: 2002, the Dutch Institute for War Documentation, the NEOD, is due to publish their Srebrenica investigation that Parliament asked them to start back in 1996. The day before the report comes out, MSF Holland opts for a similar tactic to their colleagues at MSF France. They issue a press release and an analysis by their team's working group on the NEOD report. It raises three questions about the foreseeability of the events of July 1995, which the organisation believed this latest report should answer, an op-ed piece is also published in the Dutch newspaper, Trouw.
3: Inevitably, we must recognise the mistakes that were made. This is crucial in order to ensure that people are never again left to fate in such a way. Moreover, no troops must ever again be confronted with such impossible responsibilities and such tragic failure. Finally, never again must a civilian population be given an illusion of safety, which leads them to mistakenly decide not to flee on time. It is only through meticulous analysis and an open debate on the events that the right conclusions can be drawn for the future.
1: The Dutch NEOD report is published on April 10, 2002. Just like the French one the year before, it shares the responsibility across the international community, laying the blame this time on the UN. It accuses General Jean Vier of not authorising airstrikes in time, but again it rejects the notion of a hostage deal with Bosnian Serb forces. MSF Holland's Wouter Koch worked in Sarajevo and MSF Holland's Bosnia desk during the Bosnian War.
2: Yeah, that is an old political trick. If you don't know it, you install a commission. They will be busy for two years, and by then something else will be more important. To be honest, we at MSF, we would do the same. The choice of the NIOT, that was politics. The NIOT was appointed because the NIOT is about history and has nothing to do with politics. This choice was already a depolitization of the issue. We put it in the hands of historians that are known for being very slow. And then it ran into 2002 and they could take responsibilities with no consequences. It was like a balloon that was empty. And by that time there was recognition of the fact that Dutchbat had failed. But in 1995, 1996, that was not yet possible.
1: Although seeming to not shed any new light on why Srebrenica was abandoned or who was to blame for its fall, the entire Dutch government and the army's chief of staff resigned six days after the report's publication. In May, a detailed analysis of the NEOD report is sent around internally at MSF Holland, and at the end of the month they hold a meeting together with one of the members of NEOD to discuss the lessons learned. The team goes on to discuss the risks involved in speaking out.
0: Speaking out is good, but you should not let yourself be used for political purposes. Do not spread messages without being aware of the source, or you are being used.
5: Political authorities make use of the media. ...and media is controlled by all sorts of mechanisms. It's difficult to prepare journalists and influence what is published in the media.
0: When the political will is not there, we have to go straight to the public.
3: MSF is not out there to collect data, but to speak out for the people. When all doors are closed, the people we work with still need to know what is going on.
1: On the 5th of June 2002, the Dutch parliament creates an inquiry commission... ...to investigate the fall of Srebrenica. The Commission's report is published at the start of 2003. The next day, MSF Holland issue a press release noting that the Commission has again failed to answer the key questions regarding responsibility for the mass killings. An email from Walter Koch to colleagues at MSF calls it a meagre duplication of the much more thorough NEOD report. The organisation again calls on the UK to conduct an investigation into their own responsibility for the events in Srebrenica. They also call on the United States to do the same. In 2020, neither country has begun an investigation. For those at MSF in the years it was present in the enclave, and for the decade of debates, commissions and reports after, there are mixed emotions on the organization's actions during the fall of Srebrenica. From the experience of MSF in Srebrenica, and with the necessary distance in time, there are some lessons learned. MSF France Legal Advisor, Françoise Boucher-Solnier.
5: The danger of these peace processes, which are constantly underway before the United Nations, is that that specific moment is the most dangerous moment of war. It's dangerous because it's the last time the various parties are in a position of strength at the negotiating table. That is a truth that any novice diplomat knows. The humanitarian workers in particular must know it and the UN diplomats must say it. And obviously, this is also the most dangerous moment for vulnerable populations, because no one is going to protect them at that time. It's a time for disagreement, for power fabrication. And so we realised that in the end, the enclaves were a problem in this peace process. This is particularly clear with the Dayton agreements, which came immediately after Srebrenica. These minorities in the enclaves had to be removed so that a peace could be made a peace based on ethnically homogenous populations. But if Dayton had assumed this logic of the peace process, then the Dayton negotiations should have included a guarantee to evacuate the enclave's populations, not denied the dangers. Guarantees had to be obtained, and we had to accept this dimension of the peace process, which was, yes, there is going to be a peace agreement on ethnically pure areas, and therefore we accept this political shame. We accept this military reality, and we make guarantees. But since no one had accepted that reality, well, everyone just let the population be slaughtered. And that, for us, is part of the political fault, part of the military fault and part of the humanitarian fault for not pointing that out. I think the MSF, at least, thanks to the work that was done in the fact-finding mission, highlighted the fault that had been committed. And it is a way to clear a little of the humanitarian responsibility in these processes. de la responsabilité humanitaire uh, in these processes.
1: I
4: think MSF was uh, uh, legitimate in in pushing for this exercise. Look, we were in Srebrenica. Uh, We lost colleagues. Uh, We lost patients. Uh, And so there was a really uh, full legitimacy to do that. I think the question is always, you know, how far do you go and, you know, how do you define your scope of of competence and legitimacy? Um, You know, we went very far, I think, with Srebrenica and the commission. Sometimes maybe too far, I don't know. Um, But at the end of the day, I think it was uh, the right move. And I think my only regret is that this was probably one of the last major initiatives from MSF on the protection of civilians, at least a visible one, because in in the reality of operations in the field, and, you know, the reality is that MSF, on a weekly basis, is very much involved in the protection of civilians. You know, uh, in our engagement, in our dialogue with the UN Secretariat, with the Security Council, with the member states, to, to push the protection of civilians agenda, I just wish that we would be Uh, a little bit more honest about what we're doing uh, behind the scene uh, because I think now maybe there's too much gap between what we actually push or what we actually do behind the scenes at the request of colleagues on the ground, at the request of operations, and the reality of our public communication. I think we may want or we may need to reconcile uh, this a little bit more today. And also, not forget that the first line for the protection of civilians is in the field and that humanitarian action is assistance and protection. Uh, And there's a lot you can do in the field of humanitarian affairs as a medical and humanitarian organization to push the, the protection of civilians' agenda. There is no doubt that in the 90s, MSF and, 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 you know, MSF is, is made of people and human beings. And uh, a lot of colleagues were quite traumatized by, uh, by the experience in Rwanda, the experience in Srebrenica and Bosnia. And that, that's uh, very much understandable. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of them, they felt guilty or they felt that they had been fooled they were told that there would be this promise of protection for the people, for the populations. And in the end, these promises were just abandoned. And, and I think for a lot of them, there was this idea that, you know, this, this won't happen again. I will not be fooled again. And so we, we, we have to be less naive. We can't believe in the protection of civilians by peacekeepers. And so we have to stay away from these conversations and we, we, we have to be careful when we call for the protection of civilians. And I, I completely understand that I respect it. I also actually share that for, for a long time, but I still believe that it's important for MSF to be part of these conversations because, you know, you learn from, from your mistakes and your trauma and precisely, I think today may be your voice is a little bit less naive. And, and I think our voice is probably more grounded because of these experiences and because of the trauma of many, uh, many colleagues. So I think we should not leave the table on, on these issues. On the contrary, we should make sure that this more mature voice is used to continue to push because there's still a lot of work obviously
1: on this front. As we said at the start of this series, the action of speaking out often poses dilemmas for MSF. The context of the war in former Yugoslavia, and more specifically the fall of Srebrenica, highlights this complexity for MSF. By providing medical aid to a besieged population, was MSF contributing, like prison doctors, to the strategy of the besieging Serbian troops and also perhaps softening their image? On the other hand, should MSF have called for the evacuation of the civilians who wanted to leave? And if so, would it have abetted the ethnic cleansing policy of the besieging army? Should MSF have trusted the ability of the UN protection forces to protect civilians? Is it the role of a humanitarian medical organization to issue an appeal for an investigative parliamentary commission, then, once it's established, to actively monitor it with a critical eye? Some of these dilemmas show that the decisions to speak out or not, and how, isn't governed by a simple set of rules and regulations. At times of great uncertainty, during crisis, the difficult choices that will have to be made must be measured against a clear understanding of the context. There's no other way. But it's interesting and essential to look at how past decisions can guide future choices that MSF and other similar organisations will have to make. The MSF Speaking Out Srebrenica podcast is based on an original MSF case study called MSF and Srebrenica 1993-2003, written by Laurence Binet. It's part of the Speaking Out case study series, an international project of MSF. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Martin Soligny and Sandy McKee. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Daniela Bellos Stag and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. The voiceovers are by Michael Barrett, Clive Hayward, Andrea Rangecroft and Joanne Wong. A special thanks to Francoise Boucher Solignier, Dr. Ronnie Brauman, Dr. Georges Dalmagne, Dr. Graziella Diap, Fabienne Debouet, Graziella Godin, Wouter Koch, Dr. Jacques Demiliano, Stefan Oberright, and Eric Stobarts. Thanks for listening to this series on Srebrenica. To read the full case study and discover others in the collection, please go to our website msforg speakingout.